Okay, you get very accustomed to those places. But, you know, we go there, and um, I am, all of Clay's Mill Baptist Church eats at uh, Lyle's, uh, Lyle's Barbecue. And we just barely made it in time. They go, independent Baptist churches go longer than Southern Baptist churches. And uh, when they get out, they fill that place up every Sunday. <clears throat> so with that, but we, we beat them there. So, and uh, Chris is sold, as well as Lauren, and that's the, so far their best barbecue place here in Lexington. Uh, so with that, we're going to see here in the Bible about a, a several different stories here in the Gospel of Luke, and it's going to remind us about our uh, in, importance of being consistent. It's very easy as believers to become discouraged during difficult days and tough times. And we certainly live in a time where uh, things are, uh, are rapidly changing. Uh, John Maxwell, who's a leadership expert, he came out with a brand new book. It came out this past Tuesday, and I was standing at the Lifeway store before Lifeway even opened this past Tuesday. I was there at 8.45, and they opened at 9, anxiously trying to buy the book to give it out to our non-staff members here at our church so we can go through this book called Leader shift not leadership leadership and what john maxwell's talking about change by the way they, they didn't have it in stock and it was the day it came out they didn't have it so i had to order it on amazon i was hoping to support the local store but anyway it didn't work out but um anyway what happened is john maxwell is sharing how long-range planning years ago when you used to hear the phrase about long-range planning you'd hear stuff about 10 years down the road, 15 years from, two years is now long-range planning. And the reason why is because we live in a time that is changing rapidly. What I mean by change is that our culture is becoming more digital. People are, um, it's harder to get people to get out. People with becoming more digital, they're less relational, so they don't connect more. Getting, getting young people, I remember growing up, literally, we had cable. Cable meant you had 25 channels. I mean, you knew everything on TV. I mean, there was only one ESPN, one CNN. There are so many options. I, we can't even follow. You don't even know how many channels you have. And that doesn't even include other forms of media. So what happens is everyone is vying for your attention. But the challenge of this is we as Bible-believing Christians, what's most important for us is we have to remember and never forget we have the greatest message in the world. And Jesus is going to illustrate this right here in Luke chapter 18. And we have to realize that even when the devil has blinded people and their attention has been pulled and placed elsewhere, we have a gospel, though, that still speaks truth into people's life and still changes people's life. And it's just a different median is getting it to them. It might not be like the way it used to always be. It might be more digital. So we're going to read here, and we're going to see a story of a lady that was able to break through. And you want to follow along here with your uh, uh, bulletin insert as well. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray. Always and never give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. So that sounds like today. 
And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So apparently, remember this is a parable, so it didn't really happen. It's a story. This lady is going to this unjust judge over and over again. Apparently she had been wronged against, and she's coming to him saying, I want justice. This is an injustice that has occurred to the judge. For a while, he was unwilling. But later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, that's a bold man, he just goes ahead and admits it, I don't even fear God, I don't even care for people. Yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Four years ago, we had a lady come to First Baptist Church of Moreland, Georgia. I'm not going to say her name because she's still there. Her husband, they lived in Barnesville, Georgia, about 20 years ago. Barnesville, south of Atlanta, along I-75. They owned a convenience store. And God had blessed them. They were very involved at their local Baptist church. She had been married 35, 40 years. They were about probably 50, uh, 60 or so years old at this point. And um, one day, she said a 13-year-old, she helped, this was a local convenience store. It sold gas, it sold, you know, just whatever a typical convenience store sells. He, I mean, he was a deacon, just super involved at their church, just leaders. She taught Sunday school, I mean, just godly folks. And God had blessed this couple. Well, one day a 13-year-old boy came in, and he was in a game, and he came in with a gun to rob the store. Normally, she said she would have been there, and they have other employees, but it just happened that day. It was towards closing. It was one of the most dangerous times in a convenience store. It was late at night, and he came in there just a few minutes before closing, and he held up the store, and he shot and killed her husband. Uh, over literally like $87. I mean, it was just, it was tragic. Her, she lost her husband. Uh, I mean, on the news, they caught the guy. I mean, this was a child who did this. And um, you can just imagine, I mean, they had a wonderful family. And I remember sitting in her living room. She came to our church. She moved. And she told me her story. And she told me, she said, Daniel, the, the boy was, since he was like 13, he didn't get an entire, I guess, life sentence because uh, he was a juvenile. He was considered you know, a minor. So they only sentenced him like eight or nine years there in court because he was a minor and he was so young. So what happened is she, because of this sentencing, once a year when it was parole, he would come up for parole. And what would happen is she would always make sure, she had to go to Savannah for some reason, it's like where the parole office was, drive to Savannah and appear every year to stand before this parole board and remind the judge, by the way, this man, who he's eligible for parole now after eight, eight years or so, he's only in his 20s at this point, he's a dangerous man, he was a member of a gang, and he's 13 years old with a gun. He killed my husband. And she continued to do that every single year, even to now, keeping him in jail. 
because he was eligible for parole, and she would show up to keep him locked up. And she was always worried. This is what she told me. Because at this point, she was probably in her early 70s. She was always worried he was going to get out and at some, some point in his 20s and come find her. Now, she had moved about an hour away, not right down the road from where we were at. But that was that fear. But her persistence, every year, the boy was up for parole. She went to that parole board and that hearing. Now, she, he didn't know she was coming to make sure her enemy who killed her husband. Now, since then, she had gotten remarried <clears throat> after she lost her husband. He stayed behind bars. And that was, that was her, um, her persistence in keeping him locked up, making sure there was justice. When I read this story, I see something very similar. This woman here, this widow, apparently, we don't know, maybe someone had killed her husband. Maybe she was a victim of a crime that caused her to become a widow, or someone had stolen something for her greatly. And she was determined, even though there is this unjust judge in this story, even though he doesn't fear God, I know if I pester you enough, if I'm ruthless and just keep knocking on that door, I'm going to wear you down. And I'm going to get justice. And then she did. Finally, this unjust judge said, you know what? I don't even like this lady. She pesters me to death. This is crazy. But I'm just tired of her knocking on my door, coming and visiting me, and pestering my staff and people here. Just, let's just give her justice, whatever she wants. So look what Jesus said. That was the story here. So look what Jesus says about this principle. Now remember, so what does this have to do with it? Well, this is a murder story. No, this is about prayer, actually. This is what this entire parable is about, what Jesus teaching is about. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? Jesus is saying, listen, if this widow can cry out to an unjust judge day and night and pester him to death, what about the Lord? And his chosen people, his elect, elect in the Bible means the saved. If you're a born-again Christian, the Bible describes you as the elect. If you're the elect and you go persistence to the Lord over and over and over again, will he not help you? Will he not delay? Will he delay in helping you? Verse 8, I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, I want you all to follow this Broadway Baptist Church. Jesus is saying here, you know, if an unjust judge, if he's going to grant justice to this woman who's pestering him to death, how much better would your faithful father who loves you, who you're part of the elect, will he not swiftly grant you justice. Jesus is reminding us that we can learn from even someone who's lost and someone who's been persistent in trying to get justice that doesn't even fear the Lord. If we go to God and we are faithful 
and we are persistent in our prayers, and we are crying out to the Lord, how much better would God hear and answer our prayers? Do you want to have, do you want to experience revival here at our church? Do you want to say, I'm so proud, we had a college student, first time, uh, Chris and I were lunch, we're talking about, we had a, someone shook their hands, I, I was trying to stand that door, every now and then we go to that door, but I was at that door today, shaking folks' hand, and a college student came through, a young lady, and she told me she was a freshman at UK, she was just like 18, she was first time ever church, she said she was really, uh, was excited, we have a new college minister, and she said she loved it, she's coming back, and I said, ma'am, I don't know your name, I didn't say that, I said, ma'am, <clears throat> why don't you go and speak to Chris and Lauren, because they're standing right up there. And, and introduce yourself to them. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be a blessing that Broadway Baptist Church college ministry flourishes? You know, Zach Bauer's been on staff here for a year and a half. When he came, our youth group had Daniel Jr. and Victory. That's um, Raphael uh, Jubin and uh, Pasquine's daughter, Victory. I mean, they were just starting. It, they were running two. This past Wednesday, they had a record high Wednesday night. Just regular Wednesday. He wasn't even giving away money or anything. Just a regular Wednesday night Bible study. They had 25 middle and high schoolers. And that's just children, no adults. That doesn't count the adults and leaders. That's a blessing. That's a revival for a church. In a year and a half, to just slowly see that faithful, faithful focus. Chris, it'd be a blessing in a year and a half in 2020. There's 25 cautions. There's no reason it couldn't be. Listen, through persistent prayer, through crying out to God, he'll do it. That's the story. And Jesus is asking this question in verse 8. Look what he says here. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The thing is, what happens to folks? Instead of thinking about the Lord... Instead of doing the things of the Lord, guys, we're thinking about Kentucky basketball. We're focusing on the Super Bowl. There's other priorities in our life that come in front of Jesus. And he, well, he's looking for people like this persistent widow. I've used it, I preached on it a few months ago. I call it the daily grind. Victories are won in routine. The daily, listen, a church grows, a church reaches people by just faithful, just one family at a time, one person at a time, one lost person, one, one empty pew thinking, who can I invite that needs to be here in church? That people who I have in my circle of influence, a neighbor, a family, a friend, that needs to know the Lord. We all know somebody. And that's the question. Jesus is asking us, are we going to find faith in faithless times? Look here on your white piece of paper. Three challenges, and they're up here on the screen as well. This is what you want to fill in in your bulletin. Three challenges with persistent prayer. Here are the challenges, what happens. If you, you can sit here in pew saying, Preacher, you're right. I want to be somebody that's going to have persistent prayer. I want to start praying, just praying for spiritual breakthrough, praying that I see changed lives, praying that people I'm around come to know the Lord. Number one, it can become discouraging when you don't receive an immediate answer. This is one of the most challenging things. You're praying to God, thank God, this is discouraging. Well, I'm not seeing answers. 
Do you know, probably a year and a half ago, if we could rewind to August of 2017, when Zach showed up, I mean, he walks in youth group. First Wednesday night, it's Victory and Daniel Jr., two sixth graders that are immature. Well, at least one of them immature. I know that. <laughs> and they're just like a goofy thing. I just prepared. This church hired me full time to prepare a lesson <laughs> for these two children. I mean, it's, it, one, one, the daddy's a preacher. The other's in seminary, work on his doctorate. Like, this is it. This is, like, they're gonna, like, they're going to be here at the church, like these two kids. And you just, you start at, at just a small group, but it's that persistence. God takes just small to nothing to zero, and over time of persistent teaching and inviting and praying, God brings the harvest. He brings the folks here. And that is what, it, and we have to remember Yes, it's, there's going to be discouraging times in your prayer life. If you're praying for a healing, I mean, I think of the Huff family right now in Houston for David and Glenda Huff. It's discouraging. You're praying for your 32-year-old son to be healed of cancer, and you're hoping for this great breakthrough, and it's, you might not see it right away. It's, it's slow, you know, Two steps forward, three steps back, three steps forward, one step back. This is, we're just going back and forth. I don't feel like we're making any progress. That's the daily spiritual grind. And the powerful thing about that, if you're in it, it's discouraging, but at the end of it, God blesses it. Number two, prayer is work. It's work. The Spirit is willing. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Think about all the other things you could do than spend time in prayer. Think about all the other things you could be doing than really getting on your knees with the Lord. When you tell someone you're going to pray for them, you just signed up for a job. I mean, literally, you just committed to something and you need to fulfill it. Otherwise, you're lying to them. Jesus told us this. Everybody's willing to pray, but a lot of people, they just, they don't. They're just not, they're, they're tired. Number three, if an unrighteous judge is moved by persistent pleading with this widow in this story, how much more would a righteous God be moved by faith? And that's our question here. God asks us, do you want to be moved by faith? And it's the persistent faithfulness from the followers of Jesus that moved by the Lord. Any spiritually strong church, any spiritually vibrant believer is going to have an active prayer life. One that is work, and they devote time towards it. That's, this is the story that Jesus used to illustrate prayer. Frequently, our prayer life we get the answer of no, but what God is really telling us, what he really means by that, no means wait. And the reason why I believe no means wait is because he knows that he wants to see, okay, I'm not just going to answer this in one, one prayer. I want to see if you're faithful over a year or two years or three years. 
crying out, and then I will answer. God responds to the persistent pleading of his people. And we can't mistake a wait answer for a no answer. You know, many times we aren't going to know the answer to some of our prayers and why things happen frequently until we get to heaven. But a lot of times we don't see the breakthrough in our life until we are, uh, we're, until that wait becomes a yes. All right, moving along here in your Bible. Look at the second thing here. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is a parable for church folks because uh, Jesus is going to remind us that if we're not careful, we can find ourselves just like this Pharisee. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who were trusted, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Do you know anyone like that? Someone who is self-righteous. Someone who trusts in ourselves. I want you to know what this means by someone who trusts in themselves is that person you invite to church, and they tell you they don't need to go to church, that they, they know the Lord, that they, uh, they're right with Him, and they're ju- doing just fine. We are surrounded by self-righteous people. People in politics, people who love politics, especially become very self-righteous. Self-righteous folks feel like they've already got it solved. They know the answers. They're better than you. If you could just think how they think, you'll also agree. Look what Jesus says here. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this by himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I mean, this, this guy was so arrogant, he was even praying against the person next to him, saying, just, I'm so glad I'm not this person. Thank you, Lord. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything. If you ever wonder, um, did Jesus affirm tithing? Here's a certain here's a, a certain verse right here. Jesus referenced tithing. That was expected of folks. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, "God, have mercy on me, a sinner." That's all he was doing. He was, he was repenting. He acknowledged that he was a tax collector. Now, in Bible times, a tax collector meant he was a Jewish person. He was hired by the Roman government to, uh, to raise taxes or to collect taxes from the folks. Remember, if you were Jewish during the time of Jesus, you lived, obviously, there in Israel, and you paid the temple tax, but you also had the Roman government who ruled over you and you had to pay to Caesar. Well, what they would do, the Romans, they would hire Jewish people that knew the language, that knew the customs, and they'd say, all right, Matthew, Matthew's a perfect example, first, first gospel in the New Testament, you're going to be a tax collector, we're going to hire you, you go collect taxes among your people, and um, you're going to give it to us. Now, if you rip them off, that's up to you, but if you overcharge, that's fine, that's your thing, but uh, Caesar is getting his money from the people. That's all we care about. Now, if you need to add some commission, fine, you do that. Typically, tax collectors during Bible times were wealthy because they ripped people off. They added them out. And here's the problem. There was very little justice because who would you appeal to? You couldn't appeal to the Roman government because they would just side with the tax collector because the man worked for the Romans like Matthew did. So that's what was going on here. So people hated 
tax collectors. They were thieves. They stole from you. They extorted money. So all of a sudden, this righteous man, when he goes to pray, he thinks, I'm just so glad I don't work for the Roman government. I'm not going around ripping people off. And the tax collector, when he goes to pray, he realized, I'm breaking the Eighth Commandment. I'm stealing from people, and it's wrong. And he repented far off. He didn't even get close to the temple. He stood off. And he's telling God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. He used that word that he's a sinner. He acknowledged his sins. Notice the tax collector or the Pharisee never even acknowledged his sins. In fact, he named the sins of other people. He started telling other people what they were doing. So understanding, this is, I want you to say, so here's here's how you're able to identify, okay, am I a Pharisee or am I a tax collector? When you go in your prayer closet, and you go to the Lord, if you're thinking of the sins of other people, you're a Pharisee. If you find yourself repenting of your own sins, Lord, I'm a sinner, that means you, you, you get it. Repentance is for you. When you go to the Lord in prayer, you're not praying for other people's sins. You're praying for your own. And that's the difference. So, so for your own self-evaluation, you have to be able to say, God, what, who, what do I pray about when I pray? If I'm praying for other people's sins, I'm like this Pharisee who literally is naming other sins that was going on here. Now, keep going along in this passage. Verse 14, I want you to follow along with this, Broadway. I tell you, the one went down to his house. I tell you, this one, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's so sad about this story is the Pharisee thought he was saved. He was not justified. Jesus is saying there's a lot of self-righteous people who think they've been born again, who think they have a relationship with the Lord, but they're missing a big spiritual component. What are they missing? They're missing the act of repentance. Jesus Christ calls us. If you want to be saved, you want a relationship with the Lord, you repent of your sins. That is where faith starts. You acknowledge you need Him. Moving along here, verse 15, blessing the children. People were bringing infants to Him so He might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them. So Jesus is inviting the children to come to me. He said, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. I want you to follow this, what Jesus is saying. This is very important about salvation. Have you ever gone to church and and I don't answer this on my sermons, but maybe another preacher you went to and you heard him preach, and you think, what a simple sermon. All he did is just tell folks how to go to heaven and how to be saved. And then you hear him again, and you think, didn't he preach that last week? I mean, he just told folks how to be saved and go to heaven. And then you go back a third time and think, my goodness, literally, he must not have to write a new sermon because he's literally saying the same thing Over and over and over again. What Jesus Christ is telling us is that the simple childlike faith 
repenting of your sins, trusting in the Lord, following Jesus, that is the kingdom. Christianity is not hard. It's not confusing. It's not theological. It's not advanced 105 class. It's nothing like that. He's saying it's a simple childlike faith. And Christ is asking us, if we don't come to God, listen, we do not come to faith in Christ by reason or by being argued into the faith. We come by acknowledging, Lord, I'm lost. What I learned in Sunday school, what I learned as a child in VBS are the same biblical principles today. I need the Lord. I need to turn to Him. He saves me. He forgives me. I call out and cry out and turn to Jesus. That is biblical salvation. That's how you lead someone to Christ. Telling other people about Jesus is not tough. You should be able to simply share the gospel. It's not a hard gospel. The disciples here were making it difficult for these children to receive a blessing from the Lord. Jesus was blessing these children. What he was saying to them is the simple belief that he's the Messiah, that he's going to die for them, and he did die for them, is eternal salvation. Moving along here, these next sections, well, we'll wrap up here. And this is one of the most famous stories here. It's called The Rich Young Ruler, because this is many ways what all young people want to be like. This is a picture of every 25-year-old today. <clears throat> that would be Chris's age. So this is what it's like here. The rich young ruler. Verse 18. Um, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to tell this story here. And, and notice this is not a parable. It doesn't say it's a parable. So that means this really happened. So we're shifting from parables to all of a sudden this event that occurred to this young man. And then Jesus is going to challenge this guy, and then he's going to have to explain that these are the folks who can be saved. All right. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not bear false witness. Do not steal. Honor your father and mother. Now, what's important about these commandments that Jesus named here? He's naming the Ten Commandments. That's right there from Exodus chapter 20. He's naming the latter half of the Ten Commandments. Remember, the first commandment there is worship the Lord your God. The second commandment is you should have no other idols. Jesus doesn't name those because he doesn't have the worship of the Lord first. He's thinking, you know what? I don't steal. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't, uh, I, I don't lie. I honor my mom and dad. So from a moral aspect, this guy's made it. Verse 21. Yeah, now remember here, this young man, he's very proud. I've kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told them, you still lack one thing. There's one thing you're missing. So I'm probably thinking, this young guy is probably thinking, I'm going to make it. What could be the one thing 
that I lack. Go and sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, there was a problem with that. This is a young man who is very powerful, who is very wealthy. Jesus just said, you need to make a pick. You're either going to have me or you're going to have your treasure. Where is your treasure at? Your treasure, your earthly treasure? Or is it me? If you want to be my disciple, your wealth can't stand in the way. What he's saying here is this, there's this deceitfulness of these riches. They're blinding this man. And it says in verse 23, after he heard this, he became extremely sad. Why? Because he was very rich. He could not do this. His wealth prevented him from following Jesus. Now, many of us, I would say 99.999% of people who read this story think, Daniel, that's not me. Uh, all I do is I've got bills to pay. I've got to buy groceries. I don't have any money. There's, there's lots of expenses. I'm certainly not a rich young ruler. I'm not young anymore. I'm not rich, and I'm certainly not a ruler. This, is, this story does not apply for me. Wrong. This story applies to all of us. For us, it might not be the wealth. What Jesus is saying here is he's going after the one thing that's preventing this man from following him. Now for us, some of us can't follow Jesus because we go on vacation all the time. Some of us can't follow Jesus because we have a <coughs> large family and there's always things to do with our family. Some of us can't follow Jesus because we are absolutely in love with sports. Some of us can't follow Jesus because, I mean, literally, we work all the time. Whatever it is in your life, your hobbies, and mentally, you want to be there. And you might be there mentally. But when you look at how you spend your time, I want y'all, I'm hitting it here. I want you to see what I'm saying. You follow Jesus by how you spend your time. A disciple is time-consuming. Someone who's going and walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to be one of your disciples. I want to join the team. He's saying, I'm ready to go. And Jesus is looking and says, you want to join me? Well, all of a sudden, you need to go sell your possessions. For some of you, he, Jesus, to follow Jesus, he wants he wouldn't say, you don't need to sell your possessions. You need to put me in front of your children and your grandchildren. You need to start, quit working all the time and spending more time with the Lord. And quit thinking about work all the time. Or worrying about the stock market. Or worrying about health. Jesus is just saying, I want you. Part of being a follower of Jesus, church, is saying, what in my life could be standing in the way for me following the Lord. And for this guy here, he happened to be very rich, and Jesus went after that. For some of us, it might be you, have, you are such a task-oriented, schedule-oriented person 
that you literally in your day, you do not have time for Jesus because there's so many other things you feel you have to do. Now look what happened here. The disciples want an explanation about this because they need to make sure they can make the cut. Because if this guy can't make it and they looked up to him, I wonder if I can make it. If he can't be a deacon, if he can't be a follower, am I? do I qualify? Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now what Jesus just said there is he is not saying wealthy people can't go to heaven. He's saying it's possibility that your wealth can get in the way of you from serving the Lord. I know many people, they know more about sports. They know more about football, baseball, basketball, golf, whatever sport there is, than the Lord. They know the stats. They know who's doing what. They, know, they follow them on Twitter and Instagram. They know everything about these athletes' lives. But they couldn't quote one or two Bible verses to you. And Christ is saying, instead of that question, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a Kentucky basketball fan to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for to go through it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for an Alabama football fan to enter the kingdom of God. You just fill in the blank. Where it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a person who goes on vacation every week to enter the kingdom of God. Something is standing in the way of following the Lord. Discipleship, Broadway, is where we say, God, I'm coming to you, and I don't want anything to prevent Nothing's going to allow me to stop following. And that, that can be uh, people at church. That can be things going on in your life. Whatever it is, that, that could be disappointments. That could be unanswered prayer. What has caused me to become bitter towards following Jesus? What has prevented me? If there was a time in your life that you were more closer to the Lord and more involved in church than you are in 2019, you were a backsliding Christian. You are no longer following like you should be. You're going the wrong way. Those who heard this, look at this, verse 26, asked, and they just go to Jesus and say, Jesus, well, who then can be saved? Because, I mean, they're sitting, the disciples are thinking, man, I don't know if I can even make it. I mean, I'm Peter. I'm John. <clears throat> I mean, I'm James. They're just they're listening to this thinking, is anybody going to heaven? Is, is anybody going to join the club? He replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And why Jesus said that is he's saying, Yes, it's impossible for you to become a disciple, but with God, I will make it possible. He will make you remove these barriers to following me. And Peter spoke up and said, Look, We've left all we have, and we followed you. So Peter's very proud of everything he left. He left his fishing business 
Right there, he threw his net down and he followed Jesus. So he called to them and he said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children, because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many more times in this time and the eternal life in the age to come. Now, Peter said he left behind his nets. He left all he had. Jesus goes on to say, you know what? There's all these people out there who've left their wives, spouse, brothers, sisters, all these things to follow me. Now, the question for us and how we're going to end this service, what have you left? Peter says he left something. Jesus says here he described all these people. They left family members. Part of following Jesus is denying yourself. There's a, there's a self-denial involved, meaning I am going to deny this time and this money I spend, these resources, these hobbies I used to do, so I can devote that to the Lord. And that's our question. This is discipleship. God, what, what, what have I left? What have I given up so I can be a follower of you? Jesus asked the question at the very beginning, going back to verse 18. Now, he told them a parable, this is verse 1, on the need for them to pray always and not give up. You know why that started that way? Because there are people who do give up. We are surrounded by people who have thrown in the towel for not just following Jesus. They don't, they don't read the Bible anymore. They don't attend, actively attend worship. They are sitting at home, and they're, they've become sour. They've become bitter and angry. And Jesus is looking at them and going, Why? Why would you trade the kingdom of God and everlasting life that I offer for this and for your prideful arrogance, just like the Pharisees? Pharisees go to pray, and all they do is think of the sins of other people. If you ever go, last thing I'll say here, and you invite someone to church, and they tell you they don't go to church because everybody at church is a hypocrite, and all they do is want money, and they lie, and they cheat, and they rip you off, and it's just a show. In the back of your mind, you should be thinking, man, he just fits the qualifications Jesus just described as a, as a Pharisee who is spiritually lost. If someone names the sins of others for why they don't get spiritually right with God, they're spiritually dead. You, no one goes to heaven by criticizing other people's sins. You do not get to heaven. You do not reach the Lord by looking at other people. How do you get to the Lord? You get to the Lord by denying yourself, saying, God, is there anything in my own personal life that's standing in the way of me following you? God, I pray tonight, if there's anything here that is preventing us from being disciples of you, that's preventing us from being followers of you, Lord, I pray we remove it. God, I pray tonight, as we've looked at your word, as your word has come alive, reminding us that we should not be concerned about the sins of other people. We should not have an arrogant attitude. Lord, help cleanse us, purify us, so that we're not like the rich young ruler, that there's anything, any time, any commitment that's more important than you. 
Lord, you have the highest calling of our life. It's above our family. It's above our job. It's above everything we are. You call us to self-denial because you are worthy. Lord, if you died for us, if you came for us, then we can certainly give back to you of all of our life. A call to discipleship is a call to eternity. God, I pray tonight, if there's anyone here who needs to make a decision, who needs to respond to this message, I pray we will be bold in doing that. You call us publicly, and we ask that you bless this invitation this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We close every worship service here with an invitation. I'm going to invite you to stand up, stand together. David Dell is going to lead us in our song of invitation. As always, I'll be standing out front waiting for you to respond. We'll sing just as I am. If you need the words, it's number 435. Just as I am without, but that thy blood was about to go downstairs, but before we do that, we have a special reception for them, so right here we'll, we're going to have a closing song. Before we do that, um, Chris is our new contemporary worship and college minister. We are in the process of forming a praise band, a, a worship team, so the, the, there's opportunities for you to serve. This is when he's putting that together. He already told me this morning, some folks have already volunteered to start, they're starting to build a band, so if that's something you're interested in, that's over our worship part. Also, we have a very active college ministry. And in your bulletin, one of the things we support our local University of Kentucky BCM, that's Baptist Campus Ministry. Baptist Campus Ministry meets down, I think it's on Monday night, down at the BCM building there on campus, uh, right there in great location. And next month, Chris is serving food, and not just Chris, our church is serving food to all those BCM students. This is a way you can connect with our college ministry. It's going to be on Thursday night, March 7th at 6 o'clock. If you want to help out with this, if you want to get involved in our college ministry, maybe you're not a front and center teaching, but there's ways to say, Chris, I'm here to support. Here's the way I can do that. Tonight, when you're in our reception, you need to go up to them and say, Dan, or say, Chris, I want to help out with this. I want to be a part of the campus ministry in reaching college students. Every August... 5,100 college students come to this city. Most of them from outside of Lexington. They're coming here every August. This is a mission field for brand new college students. Every year, a new crop of them. We want to be reaching them for a gospel. Chris, did you have an announcement for that? Yeah. Uh, so March 7th, uh, we've got food tank here. Uh, there are 
That is great. That is so. Gosh, us food's already taken care of. So, so that's that's wonderful. That folks already stepped up. So that's very encouraging. So that's so. We're about to dismiss here. You're invited downstairs. We're having a reception in the fellowship hall for Chris and Lauren. David, let's sing that chorus again. Let others see Jesus in you. Let others see Jesus in you.